Chapter Two, Part Three of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The South Sea Bubble, Part 3. In the meantime, Knight, the treasurer of the company, and who was entrusted with all the dangerous secrets of the dishonest directors, packed up his books and documents, and made his escape from the country. He embarked in disguise in a small boat on the river, and proceeding to a vessel hired for the purpose, was safely conveyed to Calais. The Committee of Secrecy informed the House of the circumstance, when it was resolved unanimously that two addresses should be presented to the King, the first praying that he would issue a proclamation offering a reward for the apprehension of night, and the second that he would give immediate orders to stop the ports, and to take effectual care of the coasts, to prevent the said night or any other officers of the South Sea Company from escaping out of the kingdom. The ink was hardly dry upon these addresses, before they were carried to the King by Mr. Methuen, deputed by the House for that purpose. The same evening a royal proclamation was issued, offering a reward of two thousand pounds for the apprehension of night. The commons ordered the doors of the house to be locked, and the keys to be placed on the table. General Ross, one of the members of the Committee of Secrecy, acquainted them that they had already discovered a train of the deepest villainy and fraud that hell had ever contrived to ruin a nation, which in due time they would lay before the house. In the meantime, in order to a further discovery, the committee thought it highly necessary to secure the persons of some of the directors and the principal South Sea officers, and to seize their papers. A motion to this effect having been made was carried unanimously. Sir Robert Chaplin, Sir Theodore Janssen, Mr. Sawbridge, and Mr. F. Isles, members of the House, and directors of the South Sea Company, were summoned to appear in their places, and answer for their corrupt practices. Sir Theodore Janssen and Mr. Sawbridge answered to their names, and endeavoured to exculpate themselves. The House heard them patiently, and then ordered them to withdraw. A motion was then made and carried, nemine contradicente, that they had been guilty of a notorious breach of trust, had occasioned much loss to great numbers of His Majesty's subjects, and had highly prejudiced the public credit. It was then ordered that, for their offence, they should be expelled the house, and taken into the custody of the sergeant-at-arms. Sir Robert Chaplin and Mr. Isles, attending in their places four days afterwards, were also expelled the house. It was resolved at the same time to address the King to give directions to his ministers at foreign courts, to make application for night, that he might be delivered up to the English authorities, in case he took refuge in any of their dominions. The king at once agreed, and messengers were dispatched to all parts of the continent the same night. 
Among the directors taken into custody was Sir John Blunt, the man whom popular opinion has generally accused of having been the original author and father of the scheme. This man, we are informed by Pope, in his epistle to Allen, Lord Bathurst, was a dissenter of a most religious deportment, and professed to be a great believer. "'God cannot love,' says Blunt, with tearless eyes, "'the wretch he starves, and piously denies. "'Much injured Blunt, why bears he Britain's hate? "'A wizard told him in these words our fate.' At length corruption, like a general flood, So long by watchful ministers withstood, Shall deluge all, and avarice, creeping on, Spread like a low-born mist, and blot the sun. Statesman and patriot ply alike the stocks, Peeress and butler share alike the box, And judges job, and bishops bite the town, And mighty dukes pack cards for half a crown. See Britons sunk in Lucas' forbid charms, And France revenged of Anne's and Edward's arms. T'was no court badge, great Scrivener, fired thy brain, Nor lordly luxury, nor city gain. No, t'was thy righteous end, ashamed to see Senate's degenerate, patriots disagree, And nobly wishing party rage to cease, To buy both sides. And give thy country peace. Pope's Epistle to Allen, Lord Bathurst. He constantly declaimed against the luxury and corruption of the age, the partiality of parliaments, and the misery of party spirit. He was particularly eloquent against avarice in great and noble persons. He was originally a scrivener, and afterwards became not only a director, but the most active manager of the South Sea Company. Whether it was during his career in this capacity that he first began to declaim against the avarice of the great, we are not informed. He certainly must have seen enough of it to justify his severest anathema, but if the preacher had himself been free from the vice he condemned, his declamations would have had a better effect. He was brought up in custody to the bar of the House of Lords, and underwent a long examination. He refused to answer several important questions. He said he had been examined already by a committee of the House of Commons, and, as he did not remember his answers, and might contradict himself, he refused to answer before another tribunal. This declaration, in itself an indirect proof of guilt, occasioned some commotion in the House. He was again asked peremptorily whether he had ever sold any portion of the stock to any member of the administration, or any member of either House of Parliament, to facilitate the passing of the bill. He again declined to answer. He was anxious, he said, to treat the House with all possible respect, but he thought it hard to be compelled to accuse himself. After several ineffectual attempts to refresh his memory, he was directed to withdraw. A violent discussion ensued between the friends and opponents of the ministry. It was asserted that the administration were no strangers to the convenient taciturnity of Sir John Blunt. The Duke of Wharton made a reflection upon the Earl Stanhope, which the latter warmly resented. He spoke under great excitement, and with such vehemence as to cause a sudden determination of blood to the head. He felt himself so ill that he was obliged to leave the house and retire to his chamber. 
he was cupped immediately, and also let blood on the following morning, but with slight relief. The fatal result was not anticipated. Towards evening he became drowsy, and turning himself on his face, expired. The sudden death of this statesman caused great grief to the nation. George I was exceedingly affected, and shut himself up for some hours in his closet, inconsolable for his loss. Knight, the treasurer of the company, was apprehended at Tourlemont, near Liège, by one of the secretaries of Mr. Leith's, the British resident at Brussels, and lodged in the citadel of Antwerp. Repeated applications were made to the court of Austria to deliver him up, but in vain. Knight threw himself upon the protection of the states of Brabant, and demanded to be tried in that country. It was a privilege granted to the states of Brabant by one of the articles of the Joyeuse Entrée, that every criminal apprehended in that country should be tried in that country. The states insisted on their privilege, and refused to deliver Knight to the British authorities. The latter did not cease their solicitations, but in the meantime Knight escaped from the citadel. On the 16th of February the Committee of Secrecy made their first report to the House. They stated that their inquiry had been attended with numerous difficulties and embarrassments. Every one they had examined had endeavoured, as far as in him lay, to defeat the ends of justice. In some of the books produced before them, false and fictitious entries had been made. In others there were entries of money with blanks for the names of the stockholders. There were frequent erasures and alterations, and in some of the books leaves were torn out. They also found that some books of great importance had been destroyed altogether, and that some had been taken away or secreted. At the very entrance into their inquiry, they had observed that the matters referred to them were of great variety and extent. Many persons had been entrusted with various parts in the execution of the law, and under colour thereof had acted in an unwarrantable manner in disposing of the properties of many thousands of persons, amounting to many millions of money. They discovered that, before the South Sea Act was passed, there was an entry in the company's book of the sum of £1,259,325, upon account of the stock stated to have been sold to the amount of £574,500. This stock was all fictitious, and had been disposed of with a view to promote the passing of the bill. It was noted as sold on various days, and at various prices, from 150 to 325 per cent. Being surprised to see so large an account disposed of at a time when the company were not empowered to increase their capital, the committee determined to investigate most carefully the whole transaction. The governor, sub-governor, and several directors were brought before them, and examined rigidly. They found that, at the time these entries were made, the company was not in possession of such a quantity of stock, having in their own right only a small quantity, not exceeding £30,000 at the utmost. Pursuing the inquiry, they found that this amount of stock was to be esteemed as taken in or holden by the company for the benefit of the pretended purchasers, although no mutual agreement was made for its delivery or acceptance at any certain time. 
no money was paid down, nor any deposit or security whatever given to the company by the supposed purchasers, so that if the stock had fallen, as might have been expected had the Act not passed, they would have sustained no loss. If, on the contrary, the price of stock advanced, as it actually did by the success of the scheme, the difference by the advanced price was to be made good to them. Accordingly, after the passing of the Act, the account of stock was made up and adjusted with Mr. Knight, and the pretended purchasers were paid the difference out of the company's cash. This fictitious stock, which had been chiefly at the disposal of Sir John Blunt, Mr. Gibbon, and Mr. Knight, was distributed among several members of the government and their connections, by way of bribe, to facilitate the passing of the bill. To the Earl of Sunderland was assigned fifty thousand pounds of this stock, to the Duchess of Kendal ten thousand pounds, to the Countess of Platten ten thousand pounds, to her two nieces ten thousand pounds, to Mr. Secretary Craggs thirty thousand pounds, to Mr. Charles Stanhope, one of the Secretaries of the Treasury, ten thousand pounds, to the Sword Blade Company fifty thousand pounds. It also appeared that Mr. Stanhope had received the enormous sum of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds as the difference in the price of some stock through the hands of Turner, Caswell and Company, but that his name had been partly erased from their books and altered to Stangape. Aislaby, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, had made profits still more abominable. He had an account with the same firm, who were also South Sea directors, to the amount of £794,451. He had besides advised the company to make their second subscription one million and a half instead of a million, by their own authority and without any warrant. The third subscription had been conducted in a manner as disgraceful. Mr. Aislaby's name was down for £70,000, Mr. Craggs Senior for £659,000, the Earl of Sunderland's for £160,000, and Mr. Stanhope for £47,000. This report was succeeded by six others less important. At the end of the last, the committee declared that the absence of Knight, who had been principally entrusted, prevented them from carrying on their inquiries. The first report was ordered to be printed, and taken into consideration on the next day but one succeeding. After a very angry and animated debate, a series of resolutions were agreed to, condemnatory of the conduct of the directors, of the members of the Parliament, and of the administration concerned with them and declaring that they ought, each and all, to make satisfaction out of their own estates for the injury they had done the public. Their practices were declared to be corrupt, infamous, and dangerous, and a bill was ordered to be brought in for the relief of the unhappy sufferers. Mr. Charles Stanhope was the first person brought to account for his share in these transactions, he urged in his defence that, for some years past, he had lodged all the money he was possessed of in Mr. Knight's hands, and whatever stock Mr. Knight had taken in for him, he had paid a valuable consideration for it. As for the stock that had been bought for him by Turner, Caswell & Co., he knew nothing about it. 
Whatever had been done in that matter was done without his authority, and he could not be responsible for it. Turner and company took the latter charge upon themselves, but it was notorious to every unbiased and unprejudiced person that Mr. Stanhope was a gainer of the two hundred and fifty thousand pounds which lay in the hands of that firm to his credit. He was, however, acquitted by a majority of three only. The greatest exertions were made to screen him. Lord Stanhope, the son of the Earl of Chesterfield, went round to the wavering members, using all the eloquence he was possessed of to induce them either to vote for the acquittal or to absent themselves from the house. Many weak-headed country gentlemen were led astray by his persuasions, and the result was as already stated. The acquittal caused the greatest discontent throughout the country. Mobs of a menacing character assembled in different parts of London. Fears of riots were generally entertained, especially as the examination of a still greater delinquent was expected by many to have a similar termination. Mr. Aislaby, whose high office and deep responsibilities should have kept him honest, even had native principle been insufficient, was very justly regarded as perhaps the greatest criminal of all. His case was entered into on the day succeeding the acquittal of Mr. Stanhope. Great excitement prevailed, and the lobbies and avenues of the house were beset by crowds impatient to know the result. The debate lasted the whole day. Mr. Aislaby found few friends. His guilt was so apparent and so heinous that nobody had courage to stand up in his favour. It was finally resolved, without a dissentient voice, that Mr. Aislaby had encouraged and promoted the destructive execution of the South Sea scheme with a view to his own exorbitant profit, and had combined with the directors in their pernicious practices to the ruin of the public trade and credit of the kingdom that he should, for his offences, be ignominiously expelled from the House of Commons, and committed a close prisoner to the Tower of London, that he should be restrained from going out of the kingdom for a whole year, or till the end of the next session of Parliament, and that he should make out a correct account of all his estate, in order that it might be applied to the relief of those who had suffered by his malpractices. This verdict caused the greatest joy. Though it was delivered at half-past twelve at night, it soon spread over the city. Several persons illuminated their houses in token of their joy. On the following day, when Mr. Aislaby was conveyed to the tower, the mob assembled on Tower Hill with the intention of hooting and pelting him. Not succeeding in this, they kindled a large bonfire and danced around it in the exuberance of their delight. Several bonfires were made in other places. London presented the appearance of a holiday, and people congratulated one another as if they had just escaped from some great calamity. The rage upon the acquittal of Mr. Stanhope had grown to such a height that none could tell where it would have ended, had Mr. Aislaby met with the like indulgence. To increase the public satisfaction, Sir George Caswell, of the firm of Turner, Caswell and Company, was expelled from the house on the following day, committed to the tower, and ordered to refund the sum of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. That part of the report of the Committee of Secrecy, which related to the Earl of Sunderland, was next taken into consideration. 
Every effort was made to clear his lordship from the imputation, as the case against him rested chiefly on the evidence extorted from Sir John Blunt, great pains were taken to make it appear that Sir John's word was not to be believed, especially in a matter affecting the honour of a peer and privy councillor. All the friends of the ministry rallied round the Earl, it being generally reported that a verdict of guilty against him would bring a Tory ministry into power. He was eventually acquitted by a majority of 233 against 172, but the country was convinced of his guilt. The greatest indignation was everywhere expressed, and menacing mobs again assembled in London. Happily, no disturbance took place. This was the day on which Mr. Craggs the Elder expired. The morrow had been appointed for the consideration of his case. It was very generally believed that he had poisoned himself. It appeared, however, that grief for the loss of his son, one of the secretaries of the Treasury, who had died five weeks previously of the smallpox, preyed much on his mind. For this son, dearly beloved, he had been amassing vast heaps of riches. He had been getting money, but not honestly, and he, for whose sake he had bartered his honour and sullied his fame, was now no more. The dread of further exposure increased his trouble of mind, and ultimately brought on an apoplectic fit, in which he expired. He left a fortune of a million and a half, which was afterwards confiscated for the benefit of the sufferers by the unhappy delusion he had been so mainly instrumental in raising. One by one the case of every director of the company was taken into consideration. A sum amounting to two millions and fourteen thousand pounds was confiscated from their estates towards repairing the mischief they had done, each man being allowed a certain residue in proportion to his conduct and circumstances, with which he might begin the world anew. Sir John Blunt was only allowed five thousand pounds out of his fortune of upwards of one hundred and eighty-three thousand pounds. Sir John Fellows was allowed £10,000 out of £243,000. Sir Theodore Janssen, £50,000 out of £243,000. Mr. Edward Gibbon, £10,000 out of £106,000. Sir John Lambert, £5,000 out of £72,000. Others, less deeply involved, were treated with greater liberality. Gibbon, the historian, whose grandfather was the Mr. Edward Gibbon so severely mulcted, has given, in the memoirs of his life and writings, an interesting account of the proceedings in Parliament at this time. He owns that he is not an unprejudiced witness, but, as all the writers from which it is possible to extract any notice of the proceedings of these disastrous years, were prejudiced on the other side, the statements of the great historian become of additional value, if only on the principle of Audi alteram partem, his opinion is entitled to consideration. In the year 1716, he says, my grandfather was elected one of the directors of the South Sea Company, and his books exhibited the proof that before his acceptance of that fatal office, he had acquired an independent fortune of sixty thousand pounds. 
but his fortune was overwhelmed in the shipwreck of the year 1720, and the labours of thirty years were blasted in a single day. Of the use or abuse of the South Sea scheme, of the guilt or innocence of my grandfather and his brother directors, I am neither a competent nor a disinterested judge. Yet the equity of modern times must condemn the violent and arbitrary proceedings which would have disgraced the cause of justice and rendered injustice still more odious. No sooner had the nation awakened from its golden dream than a popular and even a parliamentary clamour demanded its victims. But it was acknowledged on all sides that the directors, however guilty, could not be touched by any known laws of the land. The intemperate notions of Lord Molesworth were not literally acted on, but a bill of pains and penalties was introduced, a retroactive statute, to punish the offences which did not exist at the time they were committed. The legislature restrained the persons of the directors, imposed an exorbitant security for their appearance, and marked their character with a previous note of ignominy. They were compelled to deliver, upon oath, the strict value of their estates, and were disabled from making any transfer or alienation of any part of their property. Against a bill of pains and penalties, it is the common right of every subject to be heard by his counsel at the bar. They prayed to be heard, their prayer was refused, and their oppressors, who required no evidence, would listen to no defence. It had been at first proposed that one-eighth of their respective estates should be allowed for the future support of the directors, but it was especially urged that, in the various shades of opulence and guilt, such a proportion would be too light for many, and for some might possibly be too heavy. The character and conduct of each man were separately weighed, but instead of the calm solemnity of a judicial inquiry, the fortune and honour of thirty-three Englishmen were made the topics of hasty conversation, the sport of a lawless majority, and the basest member of the committee, by a malicious word or silent vote, might indulge his general spleen or personal animosity. Injury was aggravated by insult, and insult was embittered by pleasantry. Allowances of twenty pounds or one shilling were facetiously moved. A vague report that a director had formerly been concerned in another project, by which some unknown persons had lost their money, was admitted as a proof of his actual guilt. One man was ruined because he had dropped a foolish speech that his horses should feed upon gold. Another, because he was grown so proud that one day, at the Treasury, he had refused a civil answer to persons much above him. All were condemned, absent and unheard, in arbitrary fines and forfeitures, which swept away the greatest part of their substance. Such bold oppression can scarcely be shielded by the omnipotence of Parliament. My grandfather could not expect to be treated with more lenity than his companions. His Tory principles and connections rendered him obnoxious to the ruling powers. His name was reported in a suspicious secret. His well-known abilities could not plead the excuse of ignorance or error. In the first proceedings against the South Sea directors, Mr. Gibbon was one of the first taken into custody, and in the final sentence the measure of his fine proclaimed him eminently guilty. 
the total estimate which he delivered on oath to the House of Commons, amounted to one hundred and six thousand five hundred and forty-three pounds, five shillings and sixpence, exclusive of antecedent settlements. Two different allowances of fifteen thousand pounds and of ten thousand pounds were moved for Mr. Gibbon, but on the question being put, it was carried without a division for the smaller sum. On these ruins, with the skill and credit of which Parliament had not been able to despoil him, my grandfather, at a mature age, erected the edifice of a new fortune. The labours of sixteen years were amply rewarded, and I have reason to believe that the second structure was not much inferior to the first. The next consideration of the legislature, after the punishment of the directors, was to restore public credit. The scheme of Walpole had been found insufficient, and had fallen into disrepute. A computation was made of the whole capital stock of the South Sea Company at the end of the year 1720. It was found to amount to thirty-seven millions eight hundred thousand pounds, of which the stock allotted to all the proprietors only amounted to twenty-four millions five hundred thousand pounds. The remainder of the thirteen millions three hundred thousand pounds belonged to the company in their corporate capacity, and was the profit they had made by the national delusion. Upwards of eight millions of this were taken from the company, and divided among the proprietors and subscribers generally, making a dividend of about thirty-three pounds, six shillings, and eightpence per cent. This was a great relief. It was further ordered, that such persons as had borrowed money from the South Sea Company upon stock actually transferred and pledged at the time of borrowing to or for the use of the company, should be free from all demands, upon payment of ten per cent of the sums so borrowed. They had lent about eleven millions in this manner, at a time when prices were unnaturally raised, and they now received back one million one hundred thousand when prices had sunk to their ordinary level. But it was a long time before public credit was thoroughly restored. Enterprise, like Icarus, had soared too high, and melted the wax of her wings. Like Icarus, she had fallen into a sea, and learnt, while floundering in its waves, that her proper element was the solid ground. She has never since attempted so high a flight." In times of great commercial prosperity, there has been a tendency to over-speculation on several occasions since then. The success of one project generally produces others of a similar kind. Popular imitativeness will always, in a trading nation, seize hold of such successes, and drag a community too anxious for profits into an abyss from which extrication is difficult." Bubble companies of a kind similar to those engendered by the South Sea Project lived their little day in the famous year of the Panic, 1825. On that occasion, as in 1720, knavery gathered a rich harvest from cupidity, but both suffered when the day of reckoning came. The schemes of the year 1836 threatened at one time results as disastrous, but they were happily averted before it was too late. End of chapter 2, part 3